So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the first chapter, just the 68th verse. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. May the Lord illuminate our minds and our hearts to the meaning of this short, but oh, very vibrant verse. Let's ask him for that illumination. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we look at this prophecy, because that's what it is, not for us, because we look back on this and we know that everything that Zechariah said, everything that he was thinking actually was happening. That was the beginning of the fullness of time. And so we know that there's an awful lot more here than meets the eye. So I pray that you will give me the words as we go through this to understand and to, to realize the way that this has come to be, especially on this night when we celebrate your coming into this world. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we talked uh, quite a bit about the, uh, how Jesus came to the world. And one of the things that we looked at was when Jesus stood in the Jordan River and he was baptized by John the Baptist. Well, that was a closer relationship, I think, than quite, uh, quite a lot of people know. They were actually related in some way. But before that meeting, before John the Baptist was working out in the desert and eating locusts and grasshoppers and honey, and before he even started his ministry, Actually, before John the Baptist was born, before Jesus was even conceived, there was a man whose name was Zechariah. And Zechariah was an older man, and he was a priest, and this was his big day. Now, we studied Zechariah here when we studied Luke, but do you realize that was three years ago when we started uh, in this, uh, this first chapter of Luke? But nonetheless, Luke was a priest, and in those days, the way that they, um, they would come for service, they were groups of priests, and they were sort of on a revolving schedule. But the thing was that there was way more priests than there were jobs to do. So the jobs that were given out were, were determined by lot. And they would cast lot and it, lots. And it was considered to be a great privilege to be the one who would get a specific job. And this was Zechariah's big day because he got the job of burning the incense inside the holy place, right outside of the Holy of Holies. Well, when he started the process of doing this, all of a sudden an angel appeared to him. And it wasn't just any angel. There are only two angels in all of Scripture that we know their names. One of them is Michael. The other one is Gabriel. And it was Gabriel who came and talked to Zechariah. And for, of course, Zechariah was scared to death. But the angel said, don't be scared. Let me tell you, I, I came here to share something with you. But what, it was what he shared that kind of blew Zechariah away. As I said, Zechariah is an older man. And the angel said, you're going to have a son. Well, his wife, Elizabeth, was way past the age of being able to deliver babies, and she had been barren her whole life. And so Zechariah sort of questioned the, 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 the angel and says, well, what do you mean? My, I'm too old to have a child. My wife is way past the age of having it. And the angel said, well, you know, nothing's impossible with God. And because you didn't believe me, you're not going to be able to speak now until the child is born. So sure enough, he went home and uh, his wife Elizabeth conceived a son. And nine months later, there was a baby. John the Baptist was born. And sure enough, just as the angel had said, Zechariah began to speak. And one of the first things that he said was this song. 
Now, in Luke, there are a variety of beautiful songs. First is the Mary song. It's called the Magnificat. There's this song. It's called the Benedictus. There's a shorter song by Elizabeth when her child uh, leaps in her womb when she meets Mary, just newly uh, uh, pregnant with Jesus. And then there's a song of an old man named Simeon and uh, a woman named Anna. And all of these are wrapped up in the nativity story. But this is the song that Zechariah sings, if you will, or states when he can speak again and his son has been born. Now, it for the most part is prophecy. In fact, if you look just above that at the 67th verse, the sort of the prelude to it says, and his father Zechariah, that's John the Baptist's father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, So basically what I want you to see here is that to prophesy in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean tell the future, although this is. It means to say, thus saith the Lord. So in essence, God is giving Zechariah these words. So in essence, God is saying what Zechariah is saying. And that is exactly what is going to come to pass. Now, before he starts the prophecy... In this one verse, it's going to be kind of broken down into two different parts. First of all, there's going to be a benediction. There's going to be a blessing that he's going to give, and we're going to talk about that first. And then secondly, there's probably one of the most concise presentations of the gospel that you're going to find. Basically, three words. God visited and redeemed. And so we're going to take a look at that as we go through it. I will remind you this. That the subject that is on the table in Luke is the same subject that is on our table here tonight. And that is the nativity, the coming of Christ. So actually this sermon, if you were here this morning, is going to be very closely tied together with that sermon. Because basically it's stating the same thing. So I'm going to actually put the exact same question before you that I did this morning. And that is, let's imagine that we are in the stable. Let's imagine that Jesus has just been born. Let's imagine that we have a little baby boy right in front of us in a manger, which is a trough made for animals to eat out of, wrapped in swaddling cloths. And I ask you the question tonight, what are you going to do with him? He does not allow you to be neutral as far as he is concerned. You can't say, well, I I kind of believe him and I kind of don't. No, Jesus defies neutrality. You either accept him or you reject him. There is no middle ground here. So the question I ask you is, what are you going to do with him? What are you going to do? With Jesus. And with that said, let's kind of jump into what Zechariah says because he's going to sort of give us the answer of why that little child is so important. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now, that's the, the blessing, the benediction. So let's take a little bit of a closer look at that because let me tell you something. This is actually really good news that Zechariah is sharing with you. The word blessed, if you've been around here, you know we've talked about the word blessed quite a bit. Just a week or so ago, we were talking about how blessed the servants were. And we talked about a particular word in the Greek language. It's called makarios. And what it talks about is a state of blessing, to be in a state of blessedness. Well, that's not the word that Luke uses here. It's a different word. Let me read to you from the Greek dictionary what this word means. It expresses praise to God. In this context, it takes on a doxological character. Now, I know that's a big word, and I promised you youngsters I wouldn't give any big words, but there's going to be a couple scattered in here. We just sang the doxology just a few minutes ago. 
And that's a hymn of praise. That's what it means to praise God, to bless him, to give him the glory. And so therefore, when Zechariah starts his house and says, blessed is the Lord God of Israel, he's saying, praise him, honor him, give him the glory. But there's something we should know about being blessed like that or blessing God. God doesn't need our blessing. He's already so blessed in just in, in who he is. So when someone like Zechariah says that, and he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, what he is actually saying is, you have blessed me, you have showered your blessings upon me, and I'm simply reflecting them back to you. I am blessing you because I am blessed. So God has given Zechariah the Makarios kind of blessing. He's in a state of blessedness because God has showered his blessings down upon him. And so now he turns right around and says, I'm just reflecting that blessing back. Oh, my dear friends, there's one thing you don't want to do. That is to ignore the blessing of God, to diminish it, to discard it. Because when the God of the universe blesses you, what he wants you to do is accept it and enjoy it forever. But nonetheless, he starts it out by saying, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Now, he addresses God in that way. And there's good news to be found in just the way that he addresses him. He uses his two names for God, Lord and God. And then he qualifies it by saying, you're the Lord God of Israel. Now, quite often people misunderstand all the different names for God that are in the Old Testament especially. You really can't see them because you don't look in the languages that are beneath the English language. You might see Lord over and over again. You might see God over and over again. But the Hebrews had many different names for God. Now, of course, the skeptics say, well, that means they're worshiping other gods. That's ridiculous. Don't let anyone tell you. The Jews were fiercely monotheistic. They only believed in one God. But what they would do is they would use different names for God to sort of give us windows into God's character. So that we could understand different things about God. And that's exactly what Zechariah is doing here. First of all, he uses the word Lord. And that is a word that we see in the New Testament. We've talked about it. It refers to Jesus quite often and about his lordship. But here, Zechariah is using that word a little differently. You see, Zechariah is an Old Testament Jew. And so, therefore, his focus is definitely Old Testament. And so, there, when he uses the word Lord, he's going to be using that in an Old Testament context. Now, granted, the word that's written down here is in the Greek. It is the word kurios that many of you know. But in the Old Testament, as you go through the Old Testament, virtually every place you see that in the Greek version of the Old Testament, everywhere you see the word Lord, underneath it is a Hebrew word, Yahweh. And that was the most sacred word in the Hebrew language. They revered Yahweh. In fact, they would go out of their way not to use that word. They would never dream of defiling it. It is the word that God gave to Moses when Moses was looking at God in that burning bush and God is sending him as the deliverer to Egypt and Moses is trying his best to wimp out of it and he's given every excuse he can think of. And finally he says, you know, how, what if they ask me who you are? I don't even know your name. What if they ask me what the name is? And that's when God said those epic words, I am who I am. You shall tell them I am has sent you. That's the word Yahweh. I am. That's a profound word of existence. And God is simply, he simply is. 
Well, that's what the word Yahweh means. Now, it, it, in, in the way that they would use that word of God, it means the covenant God. It means the faithful God. It means the God who loves and adores his people and watches after them and keeps his promises. So therefore, it is really good news to even talk about that God. And I I know that most of you already know that, but there's probably something that you don't know about the name Yahweh. And that is that it is often paired with other names to give us more insight into who God is. Like, for instance, there is the name Yahweh Jireh. You may know it as Jehovah Jireh. And that refers to the Lord will provide there is Yahweh in Kadesh, the Lord who sanctifies or makes us holy. There's Yahweh Nisi, the Lord my banner or my miracle. My favorite, Yahweh Ra, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. Yahweh Saboeth, the Lord of hosts or powers. Yahweh Shalom, bet you know what that means, the Lord of peace. Yahweh Shema, the Lord is there. Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. And so in other words, when Zechariah uses that term, even though it's not written down, it just says, Lord, that was his understanding of who Yahweh was because he knew all of those words because he was a priest. And so this is good news. This is good news because this is a God who keeps his promises. This is the God when he put the rainbow in the sky and said, it is going to be there to tell you that I promise you that I am going to give you another solution to sin other than destroying the world by a flood. I'm going to send my son who is going to take care of sin himself. That is a promise and he kept it. So it's good news when we call God Yahweh. Well, the second word that Zechariah uses for God is a general word, kind of. It's the word in Greek, theos, and that's the word from which we get our words like theology. It's a general, broad word for God. But again, when you go into the Old Testament, into the Greek version of the Old Testament, it can be used to translate a whole host of different names for God, most of them starting with the two letters E-L, L. The most prominent of these is Elohim. And Elohim is a name for God used 2,000 times in the Old Testament, by far the most prevalent. And it means the powerful God, the mighty God, the omnipotent God, the God who created all things, the creator God. But once again, you have that coupled with other names like El Elyon, which means God Most High, or El Roy which means the God of seeing, or El Olam, the everlasting God, or El Shaddai, the God who is also almighty. This again is good news because when God makes a promise and says, believe in my son and I will save you, you know that he is mighty to save, that God can keep his promises. But there's a flip side to this. There's always a flip side in Scripture. Sometimes you don't realize that. That such a God, if he's mighty to save, he is also mighty to judge. In fact, Jesus himself said, and we, 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 we studied this just a few weeks ago in the morning. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him 
who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's talking about God. He's talking about Elohim. He's talking about the almighty, all-powerful God. He is mighty to save, but he is also capable of throwing people who reject him and do not accept his son into hell. Well, he goes on and he says that, um, that of these God, of the God, Lord God, that it's the Lord God of Israel. Now, obviously, Zechariah is a Hebrew. He's a priest. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the Messiah. He's part of what was known as a Messianic community. And he's waiting for, for God to send his Messiah to lead them out of bondage. Just like old Simeon in the temple, he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And so he knew that God was the God of Israel. In fact, Back at that burning bush, God says that to Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So when he talks about the God of Israel, he's definitely talking about the God that has come to his people, Israel. But everything was changing here. There was a new dynamic. The, 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 the fullness of time had come. And when Jesus began to teach, he began to teach that the old way, the old wine is just not going to fit into the new wineskins. In fact, he said this to some very self-righteous religious leaders of the Jews. When he said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In fact, Paul said that the whole definition of what it means to be a Jew is going to change. The whole definition of what the people of Israel is about to change. Paul said this in Romans. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul later says in his letter to the Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. If you are all, you are all one in Christ. Now, if you're a Gentile like me, if you're not part of the Jewish race, the ethnicity, this is not just good news. It is really, really Really good news. Because what it means is that the covenant that God made with his people has just expanded. Rather than being outside of the covenant with no hope of having ever have a reconciliation with God. God expands it and he says people from every corner of the world, all races, all ethnicities, all cultures. In fact, we get this beautiful picture of the church triumphant up in heaven. And this is what we read. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So in other words, just in the way he addresses God, just in what he says about the Israel of God, this is really good news, and I hadn't even got to the good news yet, because that comes next. Again, three words, probably one of the most concise presentations of the gospel that you're going to find. He, meaning God, and we've already talked about God, visits and redeems. Let's talk about that word visit just a little bit. 
Most of you know what a visit is. You go and drop by and you go see somebody. Go to the hospital and take a look at somebody. Or maybe even now it's Christmas time. Some of you might be heading out just after Christmas to go spend time with your family, spend time with friends, time to rekindle relationships, time to, uh, to, to observe family traditions. Some of you might be already there looking on the Internet even now. But that's not the meaning of the word that Zechariah uses. It's not just to pop in for a visit. It's not just to spend a few minutes or a few days with somebody. Let me read again from the Greek uh, dictionary what this word visit means. It means to exercise oversight in behalf of or to look after or to make an appearance in order to help. It speaks of divine oversight. So it's not just to come. It's not just to visit. It's not just a fellowship. It means that the Lord God of Israel has come with the intention of aiding, of caring for, of helping, of bringing a gift, if you will, to the people that he has come to see. Interesting word is from the same root that we get our word bishop from, episkopos in the Greek. And it is a word that speaks of an overseer or a shepherd or someone who looks after the sheep and guides and takes care of them and protects them. This is what Zechariah says. The Lord God of Israel has come to visit his people in this way. In fact, when he comes in this way, he brings with him the greatest gift that anyone can ever have. And the greatest gift is the gift of Jesus himself, that little baby that is even now in the manger. That's the greatest gift of all creation. He's going to come as Emmanuel, God with us. But once again, this is great news unless you reject it. Two sides. Two sides of the coin. The last thing you want to do is when God comes to visit to reject him. R.C. Sproul, uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul uh, explains it like this. When a general comes to inspect the troops, depending on the state of those troops, it can be a really good thing or it can be a really bad thing. When a general comes and he's got good troops, they're battle ready, they're disciplined, they're obedient, they line up and they go through inspection and everything is absolutely perfect, well, that could be a time of encouragement, it can be a time of reward, extra liberty, or whatever it is that general would give them. But if he comes and there's a group of soldiers who are disheveled and disobedient and 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 not ready for battle at all, well, that can be really bad news because there's going to be some midnight drills and some long marches to get them in shape. And so when Jesus talks about the gospel, when the Bible tells you about God coming to visit. That's the greatest news that anyone has ever had. He brought the greatest gift, the gift of salvation. But when you reject it, it's a complete opposite. Let me give you an example out of Scripture. In the book of Revelation, Jesus comes to the, the various churches that were there in that day. And this is what he says to the church at Laodicea. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
That's a great thing because when Jesus comes in and eats with you and you with him, that's sanctification. That, that, that is growing you in faith and in grace. And, and so for a church like the little church at Philadelphia where he didn't have anything to say bad about it or the one at Smyrna, that was a great thing. Great fellowship, great spiritual blessings, but that's not the way it was at the church at Laodicea. Jesus had something else to say to them when he came. He said, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. My goodness. That's something you don't want Jesus to ever say to you. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I have to wonder sometimes if that last statement defines some of the people who are either here or watching it over the internet. Does that define you? Would you say to God when he knocks on your door, would you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I'm talking in a spiritual sense. I've got it all together. I I really don't need you, right? And he would turn to you and say, well, you have no idea how poor you are. You are wretched, Pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Let me see if I can give you an example out of modern times. Let's imagine that you have a very rich uncle. I don't have a rich uncle. I wish I did, but I don't. Let's imagine that you have a rich uncle that is so rich that his fortune is well over a billion dollars. And you're by yourself, you're living by yourself, you're struggling to make ends meet, you can barely keep the rent paid and the, and, and the electricity on. And because of that and other things, your uncle decides that he is going to adopt you as his child. And he's already very old. So this is like almost handing you over over a billion dollars. So he wants to surprise you though. So he shows up at your front door one day with a, the adoption papers in his hand. All you've got to do is to sign them. And just like Jesus knocked on the door at Laodicea, he knocks on your door. And you go and open the door and here's this uncle that you barely know. You know that he's a very wealthy. You know that he's a powerful man and he's got some paper in your hand. You have absolutely no idea what that paper is. So you think the worst of him and slam the door in his face. But your uncle's not, he didn't get his billion dollars because he gave up that easily. So there he goes again and he knocks again. You open the door again, you see him again and you slam it in his face. He comes back an hour later, he knocks on the door, you open it and you slam it in his face again. He comes back the next day and he comes back every day the next week. And he comes back every single day the next month, every single day knocking on your door with a piece of paper that is worth over a billion dollars. And each time you slam the door in his face. And then one day he doesn't show up anymore. The knock doesn't come at the door anymore. And when he leaves and he flies over your house as he's going home with that, those adoption papers torn to shreds, he mourns because you missed your time of visitation. You were visited, but you didn't see it. You were visited and you were arrogant enough and hard-headed enough and hard-hearted enough to not even give the man a chance to tell you the great gift that he was bringing you. And so off he goes and you become the walking dead because he's not going to knock at your door anymore. Just like that with the gospel, folks. 
Just like that with Jesus. He knocks on your door. And he's knocking on your door tonight. This is what this is. This is the gospel. He is knocking on your door. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with this child? Who's in a manger. Tragically. That's what happened to the Jewish nation. Now of course there are many Jews who accepted Christ. But for the most part. They denied him. And so then the day that Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and his so-called triumphal entry and, you know, he's, people are all heralding him. Luke tells us that he weeps when he sees the city. In fact, the word isn't just weep. He wails as he looks at the city and he said, if only you had seen who I am, but yet you have missed your time of visitation. Oh, it's a wonderful thing when the Lord comes to visit, but it's a horrible thing, tragic thing, if you send him away and slam the door in his face. Well, the next word that he gives is redeem. For the Lord God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And we talked this morning about redemption because that was what Paul says. When the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. That's what Jesus came to do, to redeem us. And we talked about that redemption being sort of like taking something to a pawn shop and hocking it. Well, in order to get it back, you need to redeem it. So that means to pay off or to buy back. Well, this word again is slightly different. It's not the same word that Luke used there or that Paul used there. Luke uses a different word. And once again, this is what the word means. It means to ex- the experience of being liberated from an oppressive situation. It carries the idea of being persecuted, of being oppressed. So the pawn shop analogy doesn't work. But what does work is being kidnapped. When you're kidnapped and you're taken into custody and somebody holds you and they hold you for ransom. Now, sometimes it doesn't work out because they pay the ransom and they don't return the person. But assuming that that is what's going to happen, you ransom somebody. You go and you pay for their life and they accept the ransom and you are released. You are liberated from a desperate and a difficult situation. Most people don't realize they are slaves. Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Paul said that we are under the power of the prince of this world. And we follow in the very pathway of the world. And we think that we're free and alive. And we don't realize that we have been kidnapped. And that we're prisoners and that we're bound. And and there's no way that we can get out of that. Because you might be a child of light, but you are chained in the darkness. And that's why Jesus came, to ransom his people. It's what he said. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus does when he brings and comes to redeem those in the darkness. Well, anyway... We finish it up with one last magnificent statement, one last great news, and that is the fact that he came to redeem his people. What does it mean to be his people? 
You want to be his people. I mean, that's the greatest thing in the world that you can be is to be his people because that's what he did. He came and visited, bringing good news with him so that he can redeem, ransom, and set free his people. Well, I can't tell you who his people are. We, we don't know. God alone knows who his people are. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they are, were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. But I can tell you something. I can tell you something tonight, that if you are God's people, there is no grasp that the devil can have on your life that is strong enough to hold you from the one who came to ransom you. You may be in the darkness, you may, may be chest deep in the sewer. And we use that example all the time because that's basically the world that we live in. And Jesus came and he stretches out his hand to, to, to lead you away from that. And he says, just simply take my hand and I will lead you out of this situation. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He said, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already Because they have not believed in the very name of the Son of God. There's only one way, folks. And that is through Jesus. And that is the good news. Three words. God visits and redeems his people. So I ask you the question again. On this Christmas Eve that we celebrate the coming of the Christ child. And yes, I know it gets real confusing. And yes, I know there's a lot of signals on Christmas. And yes, I know that there's a lot of input and there's shopping and there's family and there's little babies in the manger and there's lowing cattle and bleeding sheep and everybody's got a halo around their head and roly-poly cherubims looking through the, the clouds and you try to figure out what on earth does all this mean? Well, what it means is God sent his son to save you. If you'll put your trust in him, if you'll believe in him, if you'll give him your life, if you'll give him your heart, and there's going to be a life change in you, and I don't care how desperate or bad your life seems to be, John says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, and the devil cannot hold on to you. No matter how messed up it is, turn to Jesus even now. Give him your heart, give him your life, give him your trust, and I can tell you on the authority of Scripture... That you will be saved. So what are you going to do with Jesus? Well. I hope that you bend the knee. And you accept him as Lord and Savior. Because that. Is Zechariah's good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father I just. I just thank you. I don't even know how to begin to thank you. For the good news that you give us. I know it's tragic. To me, it breaks my heart to know that so many people are going to listen to that, let it bounce off of them, and go right on about their life as they have never said. You knock on their door, and they slam it in your face, and then they're going to wonder when they stand in your presence what went wrong. Lord, I just pray that that's not... You're not going to let that happen to those who are gathered here, those who are listening over the Internet, that your Holy Spirit will work in their hearts and... Open those hearts up to the reality that when you sent your son here as a child, 
You sent him to forgive our sins, to give us righteousness, to save us from ourselves, and to take us back with him into heaven. We give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.